I'm going to forsake uh, an opening illustration um, to lay out a couple of caveats and warnings, if you will. Uh, there are a lot of pitfalls when we come into passages about husbands and wives, and I wanted to address those. First, I want to give a word to the single out there. Bear with us. <laughs> um, we often in the church uh, put marriage on a pedestal in such a way that um, can make you all who are not married feel like a second-class citizen, uh, can maybe poke at some of the, the hurts and losses in your life. Um, I am truly sorry that that's the tendency that we have. It's not the tendency that scripture has. <laughs> um, and we deal with what's in front of us in the text and this is what's in front of us in the text. Though I would encourage you to listen because Paul's only kind of talking about marriage here. And what he's talking about has application to those who even are looking at marriage from a distance. Um, a word to the ax grinder. This passage is not doing what you want it to be doing. Uh, if you're coming to this passage to have it define very neatly what a marriage should look like and what those roles should look like, heads up. That's not what we're doing here. Um, and, uh, and it's good to see the word for what it is. And a word to the wounded. Um, those who have experienced marriages that are hurtful. Um, to be fair, all marriages have hurtful times and places. But some of you have been deeply wounded um, in marriages. Some of you have been deeply wounded by the way the church has emphasized certain parts of what a marriage is. And I'm sorry there too. Um, we want to engage with what the word of the Lord has, um, even when it hurts us. I think that if we're honest about what Scripture says about marriage that hopefully there's a balm there for what you have been through. Or my second caveat, I'm stealing a lot from Keller today. I understand. You, you guys understand about me now that I've been influenced by Keller. For a lot of reasons for that, I'd love to talk about that. One of the reasons I think he handles the word really well, and I also think he handles things, his voice is different from my own. And so I find if I'm going to listen to a sermon of the week, listening to somebody who I might be tempted to steal from entirely is not the way to go. Um, and so I have a good engagement with his preaching um, that helps me. But uh, one of the reasons I steal from Keller today is my advice when I do premarital counseling um, is that you learn from those who have more experience from you. Uh, and regardless of how well Tim handles the word, uh, Tim and Kathy's marriage have been one of those that's been a good um, example to, to believers. So I want to listen to what he has to say. Third caveat, words have meaning, but we usually don't understand what those meanings are. Uh, we're going to hit some words in here that we like to misuse. Words like submission, love, authority. As much as you can, hold the gut reaction to these words <laughs> so that we can see what the text is really saying. All right, those, that's my opening bit. We've been working our way through Ephesians for quite a while. Um, I believe this is our 16th week. A couple more after this. 
We have to keep things in context, so I'm always going to summarize. <laughs> Chapters 1 through 3 were a picture of really what happens when you come to know Jesus. How we who are oppressed by these powers of evil, the world, the devil, and the flesh, um, die to these masters and are resurrected in Jesus Christ into a new community, into a new family, into a new person together. Our life changes. Our gifts, our community, our leadership, the way we look at things, um, it changes and it continues to change as we interact with who Jesus is. Chapters 4 through 6, Paul shifts to more of what does it look like then to be the church? What do we do? Well, he tells us we walk in a worthy manner. A manner that is um, emphasized by two things. Peace, unity and vulnerability and honesty and selflessness and purity. Living as we were created to live in the manner that the law suggests. And then he gives us our tools for the discernment of what it looks like to walk this way. The knowledge of the law of God, wisdom to work out the, you know, 80, 85% place where the law of God doesn't put a direct finger, and the joy of the Spirit within us. And he ends this passage that we looked at last week about discernment saying that the life, of, life in Christ is being filled with the Spirit, and he hits these three things that we read at the beginning of our passage today. It looks like singing, it looks like living in thanksgiving, and it looks like mutual submission. And then he goes on and he gives us three pictures of what mutual submission looks like. The, we included the text the way that it was included today because there's... I really always feel bad when I put my finger at the translation because I'm not a translator, I don't do the work. Um, there's a, I think there's an editorial mistake that's made here. Um, we separate verse 21 from verse 22, um, not as another sentence, not just as another paragraph, but we make it another heading if you look in your Bibles. Submit. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, period, paragraph end, space, wives and husbands, 22. It actually doesn't match what the Greek does. In fact, not only is I'm going to push into our 22 uh, through the end of five that we read today and the first part of six connected, um, but they're connected to this past passage as well. In the Greek, verse 22 is not a new heading. It's not a new paragraph. It's actually not even a new sentence. It just keeps running through. Submit to one another. Husbands and wives, servants and masters, children and parents. All of these things being illustrations of this original point to submit to one another. And it's important that we see that because a gap there makes it sound like Paul's moving to a new idea. And I think it's caused us to do some things with the word of God that it's not doing. 
See, we do the grammatical work here and we strip away how Paul uses language and all his conditional clauses and all of his little getting passionate and running on a side trail. And we take just the main thrust of an idea that I believe goes from verse 18 of chapter 5 all the way to verse 8 of chapter, of chapter 6. Verse 9 of chapter 6. This is what it says. If we strip everything out, we get to the main idea. The center of it says, be filled with the Spirit, singing, giving thanks, submitting to one another, wives to husbands and husbands to wives, servants to masters and masters to servants, children to parents and parents to children. That's the grammatical thrust of this passage. It's not how we usually approach it but it's how we should. And I'd love to take the whole thing as one chunk, but there's a lot that we have to say about marriage. <laughs> we would be here for like two hours. You might be able to get away, from that, away with that in some Baptist circles, but you can't get away with it here. So this week we're going to talk about marriage, and next week we'll talk about the other two, but hopefully in the context of what we talked about today. And where I'm stealing from Keller is Keller looks at this and he breaks this up into kind of three important statements about marriage here. What marriage is, what marriage does, and what marriage points to. And when we look at this in this lens, I think it helps us. First, we need to see what marriage is. Listen, Scripture continues to challenge our worldly understanding. And it does right here. What does our society feel like marriage is? Well, maybe it's a fairy tale ending to romance. Or maybe it's the backbone of American society. Ultimately, what marriage is in our world, and again, I throw us under the bus when I say our world because we have these proclivities too. The question is, what is marriage to me? And the answer to that is, it's something that validates me. This person that I love, loves me. It's something that gives me pleasure. The chemical and sexual nature of our romance. It's something that gives me status or righteousness. But this is not what marriage is. Biblical marriage is a covenant. A commitment between a man and a woman and God. And Paul here calls back to Genesis 2's picture of marriage. And I actually think if we're really going to talk about what marriage is, uh, that's a better place to start with than anything that Paul has to say. But there's this covenant connection where two irreversibly become one. And while love is reciprocal in marriage, the two-way covenant like this is as much about what we put into it as what we get out of it. So it has very little to do with how it makes me feel. That changes over time. Anyone who's been married more than a couple years can tell you that. It has very little to do with the advantages that it gives me. Those are mostly double-sided anyway. It has very little to do with the social or moral status that we receive from it. 
Actually, marriage is going to expose you and point out that maybe you don't have the status that you think you do. Rather, it's about our promise to become one and in that oneness to assist one another in the work that we're called to. Maybe that sounds unromantic. It's not. The work we're called to, after all, is love. And to assist one another in this work of love is to love them and to be loved in a way that is actually truly unique. Keller distinguishes biblical marriage from our cultural misunderstanding by saying that marriage is the promise of future love. And here we see it as a future love founded on our mutual commitment to the love of Jesus Christ. Christian marriages then should look different. It looks like what I can give rather than what I can get. It understands that something, that this relationship is something that we make and we build rather than something that we achieve. Keller also says real love instinctively desires permanence. It's a good line. And it's in this permanence that the mutual submission that we see here makes sense and plays out. I don't want to dwell here too long because I don't think this is the point of the passage. I think it could take us weeks to unravel all the twists and tangles of what we've added to this idea. But Paul frames this whole section and the following two under this idea of submit to one another. And it's under that statement that his instructions to husbands and wives fall. Wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands, love your wives. They all fit underneath that statement of submit to one another. So I think what that looks like is a lot more complicated than what we want it to. But here's what we have to understand and we have to affirm. Whatever is being established here is not hierarchy because grammatically, both are called to submit to one another. We use words like submit and authority and even headship. We have to understand that we culturally have loaded them with meaning that's just not there. Throughout the history of the church and in some eras more than others, the idea that wives are called to submit to their husbands and that husbands are the head of their wives has been interpreted as a kind of ruling authority a hierarchical structure that baptizes any of the cultural tendencies that we have there to divide between the genders and to subject one another. But we are not called to subject. Scripture never calls us to subject one another, ever. And we are both looking at what Paul says in 21, called to submit to one another. 
However, Paul does, in his language, present some gender differences between how he calls husbands and wives to submit. Wives are used this word submit. Um, actually, they don't. If you look at another problem with the Greek, because it's one sentence, has to be one sentence. Because that submit in 22 isn't there in the Greek, because it's a conditional statement. The Greek says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to their husbands. The word that Paul really brings in here and uses with women particularly is the word respect. And the word that he used for husbands is to love. And we could go on and on and on and on and on, as we have, about why he uses these two words, the way he uses them. And it actually doesn't tell us. My thinking is it probably has something to do with a general understanding of men and women and our tendencies against the kind of selfishness that we're called away from. Heather loves me. More often than not, I'm just another one of the kids. For good reason. But her tendency, I think, is to love me in more of a maternal way rather than as a partner. I, on the other hand, respect Heather. But the way I see her and value her is very often selfish. About how great she is and what that does for me. My wife is a gift. My wife is a tool. Heaven forbid my wife is a possession, but not as a partner. And I think that Paul's gender differentiation here, calling us to mutual submission, then puts his finger on maybe where we struggle with that the most. That when I really have to push myself to submit to my wife, what I'm really having to push myself to is to love her. Because that's where I fail. Whatever the reason, the reality is that in our gender differences, the way we're to submit to one another often look a little bit different. Husbands and wives, that's true, yes. <laughs> they require different kinds of sacrifices from us because our nature requires different kinds of sacrifices. And what it means for a husband to lay down his wife for his life or how that laying down might stretch him might look very different from the, what it means for a wife to lay down her life for her husband and how that laying down will stretch her. And if we take anything away from this difference, which actually is not the point of Paul's passage here at all, it's a willingness to see the unique ways that we love one another as a gift rather than as something we're forced into. We also have to understand that for all of Scripture's affirmation of gender differences, and it does, Scripture affirms gender, it affirms that there's something engendered in us that are different. There's like zero information about what that actually looks like. So any exhortations about husbands are supposed to do this and wives are supposed to do that isn't offered to us in Scripture. It's generally culturally biased. And in that cultural bias it may be a violation of the very covenant that's created. 
when a man leaves his family and the cultural things he's come from and cleaves to his wife and the person that she is. The details of how a husband and wife submit to one another and how that looks different for them is for them to sort out. We also do well to understand that there is some sort of authority here that's given to husband, and I hear your triggers starting to strain. I hear it. I feel it. Because we have a long history, well, we have two long histories. One, we have a long history of abusing authority. We just do. We have to name it. It's the truth. We also have a long history of viewing authority as a bad thing, as a hierarchical thing, and as a tool of oppression. And we have to recognize that how authority has been perverted, even, and I will say, especially in the church, is different from what it looks like in Scripture. Because in Scripture, authority always looks like laying down your life. In fact, in the biblical model, the ones with the most authority are the ones who sacrifice the most. The ones with the most authority are the ones who set aside their needs the most often. And the ones with the most authority actually submit the most often. We see this, I'll preach it at some point with you all, it's my favorite book, but we see this in Paul's letter to Philemon, where he tells the master (laughs) to lay down his life. For his runaway slave. We see this in Jesus, who has the ultimate authority and must sacrifice everything in the way that he lays down his life for us. That's what marriage is. It's a covenant where we lay ourselves down for our spouse. The second question is, what is the point of this covenant? What is it that marriage does? This agreement of mutual submission, this relationship that is as much about sacrifice as it is about anything it gains. Paul actually spends as much time on this as anything else. And it's tied to his picture of Christ in the church. And again, it's radically different than our cultural understanding and even often our church's understanding. Because the purposes of marriage are tied closely to the false idea of what marriage is in our understandings. If marriage is a relationship of pleasure and satisfaction and affirmation, then the point of marriage is working to gain for ourselves all of that self-affirming joy that's there in a perfect romance. If marriage is a relationship of social and moral status, then a marriage works to elevate my value as a human, as a citizen, or as a Christian. But between Paul's picture here and that old Genesis account in Genesis 2, and Paul's description of Christ in his church, 
we see two purposes that are quite different from all of that. Husbands and wives were meant to be helpers to their spouses. This is what Genesis says. Helpers in the work that we're called to in Christ. But even more so here in the context of what Paul has been saying about what it is to have discernment and what it is to live as the church, husbands and wives are called to be helpers in one another's sanctification, in their growth, in their relationship with Christ and who he is calling them to be. In connecting the marriage covenant to the gospel of Christ, where Christ, Paul says, loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. We see a unique purpose of the marriage relationship to assist the spirit in the process of the sanctification of our spouse. Remember, all of this is underneath that verse 18 statement of what it looks like to live in the Spirit. Making mutual submission and then here mutual submission in marriage a part of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. The good news for the unmarried in the room is we've got two more examples coming. So this isn't the only place where God gives us mutual submission that aids the Spirit. Paul has already established the fact that in relationship is where we see the blessings of the gospel unfold. Sanctification happens in community, in the fellowship of the Spirit, that koinonia. And in marriage, we have a unique opportunity to join with our spouse for this very purpose. Not the only really opportunity, but a unique one. In marriage, you will see your deepest flaws, I guarantee it. At the same time, if you and your spouse have accepted the reality of this covenant, you will also have an ally and an advocate who is ready to help you see who you are despite these flaws. Another word from Keller, and this might be the best advice to single men and women hearing this, that to seek a spouse in Christ in awareness of this covenantal nature of marriage, in awareness of the helping and sanctifying purpose of marriage, is to seek a man or woman who sees the best in you and has a desire to see you become that person and for whom you have the same desire for In Christ, marriage is a relationship where we are challenged to continue in the growth that comes as fruit of our faith. And we are enabled to exercise our gifts and our callings to their fullest capacity. And we are blessed and able to sacrifice ourselves so that our spouse may do the same. Because the greatest spouse you can find is one who loves you in this unique way this way that sees the potential of your created self, 
and is willing to do or give or sacrifice anything to see that potential revealed. This leads us to the last reality that Paul unlocks for us concerning marriage. That beyond the covenant relationship that marriage is, even beyond the helping and sanctifying work that marriage does, the real point of marriage from Genesis until now is to picture a greater covenant relationship, a greater helping and sanctifying work, a greater love, that of Jesus Christ for his people. And it's really kind of funny that we spill so much ink here trying to determine what a good marriage actually looks like. Because... Paul spends most of his time kind of on this side trail. <laughs> Submit to one another. Husbands to wives to husbands and husbands to wives. By the way, look at marriage and what this says about Christ. That's what's going on here. The bulk of this has nothing to do <laughs> with how a husband and a wife should relate to one another but has everything to do with who Jesus is and what he has done for his people. Paul makes this bold statement that marriage, in marriage there is a profound mystery and that that mystery is that marriage itself is a picture of the work that Jesus has done and is doing. He reaches back to Genesis and tells us that when Adam saw Eve and loved her and they become they became one flesh. This was predicting and modeling what Jesus does when he looks at us. That this whole narrative of Adam and Eve is more than history. It is history, but also allegory for what Jesus would do for his bride, the church. This is the love that we have in Jesus Christ. He saw us, and instead of the broken and sinful people that we are, he saw who we were created to be. And he loved us so deeply that he sacrificed for himself, that he laid down his authority, his glory, his power. He submitted himself first to the Father, and then to suffering and to death. And then he took us, and Paul has said over and over again in Ephesians, he became one with us so that we could be nourished and cherished, so that we might be sanctified and cleansed, so that we might be presented in his splendor without spot, wrinkle, or blemish, so that we might be his forever, a promise of future love promise of forever love. Brothers and sisters, this is your love story. This unsurpassable romance that you have been called into that transcends all other loves. But more than that, in this love with Jesus Christ, your Savior, all other loves become greater. Because even the best wife and even the best husband will fail you. But in Christ, we have a love that will not. And the security, the security of having one who loves us so much 
that he laid down his life, one who will never fail us. It allows us to love our imperfect spouses, and from my perspective, I will say, more importantly, allows them to love us in a greater way. And single brothers and sisters, the love of Christ allows you to live in your singleness better too. Not that it's wrong to long for marriage. Not that it's wrong to actively seek it. But if you know the love of Christ, you can endure the lack of the other love. And actually, I think endure is the wrong word. You can uniquely thrive even in the midst of the lack of that other love. And if and when you find it, the love of Christ will allow it to grow and thrive more than it would otherwise. Because brothers and sisters, Jesus is your groom. He has committed himself to you. He loves you. And in that love, Jesus actually submits himself to your good, to your growth, to your betterment, and calls you to submit yourselves to one another. Wives to your husbands and husbands to your wives. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, (laughs) it is a profound mystery. That you have loved us, that your son has loved us in a way that puts to shame the greatest romances that we can imagine. That even though we are broken people, even though I in my flesh and under the power of the devil and the world have so little to offer. Jesus has looked on us and seen who we were made to be, has told us he loved us, has given everything so that we might know that we are his loved ones and grow into the men and women that he desires us to be. Heavenly Father, I pray that the knowledge of that love would rule our lives. That it would inform everything that we do. I pray that it would rule the lives of the married couples in our congregation. That their marriages would look more and more like what has been described here. but I pray that you would bring all of us into an awareness of your love that changes how we look at everything else. We pray this for the sake of your glory and your kingdom in the name of your Son. Amen.